Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute, and I'm your host here from week to week. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our long-running series with James Jordan on the life of Jacob. And in this episode, he's going to be dealing with Rebecca and Jacob's deception of Isaac. In typical Jordan fashion, he's going to tackle several of the preconceived notions that many of us have when we come to this text. In particular, he's going to be dealing with whether Rebecca and Jacob were wrong in deceiving Isaac, or whether Isaac was in sin. We really hope that you are sharpened by this time of teaching. And as always, thank you so much for listening. This is the story of Rebekah and Jacob's deception of Isaac. There's two ways to read this story. And the common way begins in Genesis 25, where Yahweh says to Rebekah, Genesis 25, verse 23, Two nations are in your body, two tribes from your belly shall be divided. Tribe shall be mightier than tribe. Elder shall be servant to younger. The first way to read that is that that's just a prediction. How it works out, we don't know. Legally speaking, Esau should inherit. Legally speaking, Jacob should not inherit. Now, the way it worked out, the providence of God, Jacob and Rebekah sinfully stole all the stuff that belonged to Esau. And once it was stolen, hey, that's it can't get it back, and this prophecy came true. That's one way to read it. The grammar in the Hebrew will sustain that reading. The other way to read it is this. Two nations are in your body, two tribes from your bellies are going to be divided. Tribe shall be mightier than tribe. Elder shall be servant to younger, and that's a command. A God commands from the very beginning, Jacob is to inherit. Esau is not to inherit. When they're born, the younger is to inherit. That's what God says. If you favor Esau, you're in sin. Now, that is how I read it. That's what I think is implied. I think that when we looked at it, the double entendres and the names of these sons, how the names seem to switch back and forth, points to that. But my reading is that God commanded them which son was to be regarded as the firstborn for legal purposes. Therefore, it should never have been a question. I think that that explains certain things that happen in the text, preeminently the fact that Isaac is so nervous in chapter 27 when he comes to bless Esau. He keeps asking, are you really Esau? Are you really Esau? And I think he knows that he's trying to disobey God. God has commanded Jacob is to get it. Isaac intends to disobey God. He's trying to sneak around behind God's back, and he's afraid he's going to get caught. And when he is caught, it says he trembled violently. That's not, I think, what would happen if he was just tricked. I think he'd just be mad. But I think the fact that the whole narrative indicates that Isaac understood that God had commanded that everything be given to Jacob. What we read next in the passage, in the sequence of these statements, I think is important. 
it serves to bring out why they are this way. From Genesis 25, assuming that my reading is correct and that this has the force of an imperative, and like I say, your grammar is not going to tell you the answer to this. Context and the narrative flow is going to tell you whether these verbs have the force of imperatives or merely predictive futures because of the way the Hebrew verb system is. It says that the two boys were born, and it says in verse 27, the lads grew up, Asab became a man who knew the hunt, a man of the field, Yaakov was a perfect man staying among the tents, and I understand that in terms of chapter 17, 1, walk before me and be perfect. I don't think it means Jacob was a well-rounded man. I think it means he was what Abraham was commanded to be. Isaac loved Esau because he brought hunted game for his mouth, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Already at this point, Isaac has determined to disobey God. He favors Esau, and the reason is food. Rebekah loves Jacob. And again, if we go back, the prophecy came to Rebekah, and she's the mother of the seed. Now, if we think about this story, these kids are growing up. It's obvious that although God has said Jacob is to be given the inheritance, Isaac is favoring Esau. So Jacob takes steps to secure the inheritance and make sure it's all legal and above board. So we have a perfectly legal transaction here where Esau despises his birthright. That's the comment of the Holy Spirit and sells it to Jacob in a legal transaction. Now that should settle the matter. But it doesn't settle the matter. Isaac and Esau conspire to break that contract and to disobey God and to sneak around behind God's back in order to give a blessing to Esau, which God has forbidden him to do. The sin here, as I understand it, is a conspiracy on the part of Isaac to disobey God, and a conspiracy on the part of Esau to steal back something that he would sold to Jacob. Esau says, when it's all done and it's happened, we're going to read this in just a second, he complains, isn't that why his name is called Jacob? Because he's sneaked against me twice. He took away my firstborn right, and now he's taken away my blessing. Jacob didn't take away Esau's firstborn right. Esau sold it to him. If you take Esau's side here, you're taking the side of a liar. Now, of course, some people don't want to take anybody's side on this. I'm not saying that other people want to take somebody's side here. But notice that the way the passage is written... We ought not to believe this at all. first place, God has said Jacob is supposed to have it, so it was never Esau's in the first place. I submit it was never his, and it wasn't Isaac's to give. Well, second of all, even to the extent it was, might have been Esau's firstborn right. Jacob didn't take it from him. So I think the entire passage is to be seen as a serious attempt at sin on Isaac's part, Rebekah's action results in the salvation of her husband. If Rebekah had not tricked Isaac, Isaac would have blessed Esau, and he would have felt good about it, and he would never have repented. But what happens is, because Rebekah tricks Isaac, Isaac is shattered, he trembles greatly, and according to the book of Hebrews, he repents. 
But to me, Rebecca's the hero in this story. That's the exact opposite of what a lot of people do. And if there isn't any middle ground here, you either read it one way or the other, and it depends on whether the initial statement that God made is a command or a prediction. If it was just a prediction, then we have a series of providential circumstances where all the people are bad guys. Isaac's bad, Jacob's bad, Esau's bad, Rebecca's bad, but God works it out. If I'm right, you had a command to start with, Isaac and Esau are conspiring to disobey God, Rebecca acts to obey God and to save the situation. Now, we'll come back to that a month from now. What I want to do today is something a little bit different. I needed to say that to kind of set up the passage, but I want us to read it and listen to a couple of things that are said and see if we can pick out some major themes just from the tour of the passage. And this actually starts in chapter 2634 and goes all the way down to 28.9. And the passage is structured like this. You have Esau's polygamy, which is a sin. Genesis 2.24, for this cause a man shall cleave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. You can't cleave to more than one wife. Not possible. You have to uncleave to one in order to cleave to the other. It was Lamech, the descendant of Cain, who was not only the first polygamist, but the first murderer. Esau is going to be a polygamist and an attempted murderer. This is not a good picture of Esau, and it says that it was caused bitterness to both of his parents. But even though it caused bitterness to Isaac, and Isaac has all the evidence he would ever need that Esau is a profane man, he still likes him. Then we have the birthright story, no, the blessing story. The blessing story, we'll just call it that. Then we have another section on Esau's wives. That recurs again in the middle of this story. And what a sorry bunch they were, and what a sorry person he was. At the end of chapter 27, Rebecca says to Isaac, I loathe my life because of these Hittite women. Jacob should take a wife from these Hittite women like these, from the women of this land. I'd rather be dead. So then Jacob is sent away. And we have another statement about Esau's wives. And this one at the end of the passage, Esau discovers that his parents don't like his two Hittite wives, so his solution is to just go get another wife. So he compounds his sin. Esau's way of dealing with the sin is just to go out and make it worse. He doesn't repent of anything. So the entire passage is bracketed by pictures of Esau's sinfulness. And in the middle, we have these other two stories. So that is the overall contour of the narrative. And with that in mind, I'd like to read it. And you can read along or just listen and see if there's something you notice. We'll start in 2634. It's a long passage, so just kind of sit back and listen. You don't have to read along. I'll read from this Fox translation, and we'll have these old Hebrew-sounding names. When Asav was 40 years old, he took to wife Yehudit, daughter of Be'eri the Hittite, and Basimath, daughter of Elam the Hittite. And they were a bitterness of spirit to Yitzchak and Rivkah. Continuing right on the narrative, and when Yitzchak was old, and his eyes had become too dim for seeing, he called Asav, his elder son, and said to him, my son. And he said to him, 
here I am. And he said, Now hear, I have grown old and do not know the day of my death. And now, pray, pick up your weapons, your hanging quiver and your bow, and go out into the field and hunt me down some hunted game and make me a delicacy such as I love and bring it to me and I will eat it that I may give you my own blessing before I die. And Rivkah was listening as Yitzchak spoke to Esau, his son. And so when Esau went into the fields to hunt down hunted game to bring, Rivkah said to Yaakov, her son, saying, Behold, I was listening as your father spoke to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me some hunted game and make me a delicacy. And I will eat it and give you a blessing before Yahweh, before my death. And now, my son, listen to my voice, to what I command you. Pray go to the flock and bring me two fine goat kids from there. And I will make them into a delicacy for your father, such as he loves. And you bring it to your father, and he will eat, so that he give you blessing before his death. And Yaakov said to Rivkah, his mother, Behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy dude, oh, man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and then I will be like a trickster in his eyes, and I will bring a curse and not a blessing on myself. And his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only listen to my voice and go. Take them for me. And he went and took and brought them to his mother, and his mother made a delicacy such as his father loved. Rivkah then took the garments of Esau, her elder son, the choicest ones that were with her in the house, and clothed Yaakov, her younger son. And with the skins of the goat kids, she clothed his hands and the smooth parts of his neck. Then she placed the delicacy and the bread that she had made in the hand of Yaakov, her son. And he came to his father and said, Father, he said, Here am I. Which one are you, my son? Yaakov said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told to me. Pray arise and sit and eat from my hunted game that you may give me your own blessing. Yitzchak said to his son, How did you find it so hastily, my son? He said, Indeed, Yahweh your God made it happen to me. Yitzchak said to Yaakov, Pray come closer, that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. Yaakov moved closer to Yitzchak, his father. He felt him and said, The voice is Yaakov's voice. The hands are Esau's hands. But he did not recognize him, for his hands were like the hands of Esau, his brother, Harry. Now he was about to bless him, and he said, Are you he, my son, Esau? He said, I am. And he said, Bring it close to me, and I will eat from the hunted game of my son, in order that I may give you my own blessing. He brought it close to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then Yitzchak his father said to him, 
Pray come close and kiss me, my son. He came close and kissed him. Now he smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, Behold, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that Yahweh has blessed. So may God give you from the dew of the heavens, from the fat of the earth, much grain and much new wine. May peoples serve you. May tribes bow down to you. Be master of your brothers. May your mother's sons bow down to you. Those who damn you, damned. Those who bless you, bless. Now it came to pass when Yitzchak had finished blessing Yaakov. Indeed it was Yaakov had just gone out, out from the presence of Yitzchak, his father. But Esav, his brother, came back from his hunting. He too made a delicacy and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat from the hunted game of his son, that you may give me your own blessing. Yitzchak, his father, said to him, Which one are you? And he said, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Yitzchak trembled with very great trembling and said, Who then was he that hunted down hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it all before you came and gave him my blessing. Now blessed he must remain. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with a very great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me also, father. He said, Your brother came with deceit and took away your blessing. And he said, Is that why his name was called Heel Sneak? For he has snuck against me twice. My firstborn right he took, and now he has taken my blessing. And he said, Haven't you reserved a blessing for me? Yitzchak answered, saying to Esau, Behold, I have made him master to you, and all his brothers I have given him as servants. With grain and new wine I have invested him. As for you, what then can I do, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you only a single blessing, father? Bless me, me also, father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Yitzchak his father answered, saying to him, Behold, from the fat of the earth must be your dwelling place, from the dew of the heavens above, away from those places. You will live by your sword, and you will serve your brother. But it will come to pass that when you brandish it, you will tear his yoke from your neck. Now Esau bore a grudge against Yaakov because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, Let the days of the morning for my father draw near, and then I will kill Yaakov, my brother. And Rivkah was told the words of Esau, her elder son. She sent and called for Yaakov, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, Esau, your brother is consoling himself about you with the thought of killing you. So now, my son, listen to my voice. Arise and flee to Levon, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him for a few days until your brother's fury is turned away, until his anger turns away from you and he forgets what you did to him. And I will send and have you taken from there. Or should I be bereaved of you both in a single day? 
And Rivkah said to Yitzchak, I loathe my life because of these Hittite women. If Yaakov should take a wife from the Hittite women like these from the women of the land, why should I have life? Now I want you to look at the text. If you've just been listening, start reading along with me. Don't read out loud. Just read along with me. So Yitzchak called for Yaakov, his son. He blessed him and commanded him, saying to him, My son, you are not to take a wife from the women of Canaan. Arise, go to the country of Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there, from the daughters of Levon, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you, my son. May he make you bear fruit and make you many, so that you become a host of peoples. May he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your seed with you, for you to inherit the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. So Yitzchak, his father, sent Yaakov, his younger son, away. He went to the country of Aram, to Levan, son of Betuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rivkah, the mother of Yaakov, and Esav. Now Esav, Yitzchak's older son, saw that Yitzchak had given Yaakov farewell blessing and had sent him to the country of Aram to take himself a wife from there, and that when he had given him blessing, he had commanded him, saying, You are not to take a wife from the women of Canaan. And Yaakov had listened to his father and his mother and had gone to the country of Aram. And Esau saw that the women of Canaan were bad in the eyes of Yitzchak, his father. So Esau went to Yishmael and took Mahalat, daughter of Yishmael, son of Abraham, sister of Nebaioth, in addition to his wives as a wife. Here ended. Do you notice anything odd about the second half of the story as I read it? Did I read what was there? Yeah, I kept adding something, didn't I? No, 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 no. No, I wasn't. This whole rhythm of my son, my father, his brother, his mother, my younger son, my older son, that is a continual thing throughout the first part of this story. And then it drops. The verse chapter 20 is what I wanted you to pick up on. That's why I asked you to read along so that you would see that I read chapter 28 verses 1 to 9 as if it had been written in the same style. Because if it had been written the same way as the previous chapter in our chapters, we would have kept reading his son, his father, his younger son, constantly being stuck in, but we don't. That tells you, well, I hope we would pick up on, that those are refrains here in chapter 27. There is no need for them. That's part of what the story is about. Constantly we keep seeing this. Well, I'll just look at it in chapter 27. Verse 6, Rebecca said to Jacob, her son, we know he's her son. If this was anywhere else in Genesis, it would say, Rebecca said to Jacob, saying. But instead it says, Rebecca said to Jacob, her son. Here I was listening as your father spoke to Esau, your brother. Is there some other Esau out there? No. Anywhere else in Genesis, it would say, I was listening as your father spoke to Esau. Verse 8, so now, my son, listen to my voice. No, so now, listen to my voice. Verse 11, Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother. <sighs> Jacob said to Rebekah, 
Behold, Esau, my brother. No, just Esau. This constantly is being stuck in here. It's not because we don't know it. We know that Esau is the brother. We know that Rebekah is the mother. We know that Jacob is the son. We know all this. But in this particular pericope, this particular story, which starts in chapter 27, verse 1, this section here, the second section, in 27, 1 to chapter 27, verse 45, there is this constant rhythm, son, brother, mother, father. My count, and I didn't count it in Hebrew yet, I'll have to do that if we want it accurate, but I can tell son occurs 24 times, father occurs 24 times, brother 12 times, and mother 4 times in this passage referring to these four people. It also refers to my brother Laban and stuff like that. But you know, in terms of unnecessary incidences, <laughs> this whole story is all about fathers and mothers and sons and brothers. As it keeps being repeated that way, and it's the artistry of the passage, that there's this rhythm in it. And it starts to call our attention to things that we begin to notice almost certainly there are some additional thoughts. They're not immediately on the surface, but the music of the passage, we start to hear an additional thing or so, like this. Isaac called to Esau and said to him, My son. The next time we read that is, Rebekah said to Jacob, her son. Which one are you, my son? Isaac said to his son. How did you find it so hastily, my son? Let me feel you, my son, to see if you're really my son, Esau. Are you my son, Esau? See, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that Esau is blessed. Which son is Isaac's son? Esau. Which son is the son of the woman, the seed of the woman? Jacob is. Now, you can personalize that and say this is a dysfunctional family. Well, I don't know that it was. It was dysfunctional on this occasion. They might have gotten along pretty well for the rest of the time. But on this occasion, it's dysfunctional, that's for sure. But is the story only saying, oh, the mother liked the son who was peaceful and nice and artistic, and the daddy liked the he-man. Is that what this is about? I don't think so. No, I think it's all in terms of the theology of Genesis up to this point. Two trees, two foods, one food that's forbidden, and one food that's commanded. And Isaac is going for the forbidden food, is disobeying God. Well, it's interesting how it works out. In the first place, notice just some things to note along this story. We'll come back to these things. I see Rebecca as the mother of the seed. Rebecca sponsors this deception. She is only one of a long line of women who tricked the serpent because the serpent tricked the woman. We're told that the serpent deceived Eve. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The woman deceives the serpent in the Bible. The Hebrew midwives, Rahab, Jael, Abraham's wife, Rebecca. If this is a story of a sin, it's kind of an exception of these stories, but I don't think it is. It's an extreme story. Is deception of the serpent themes. Isaac was old, his eyes had become too dim to see. What do eyes do in Genesis? Eyes pass righteous judgment or wrong judgment. Genesis 1, God saw it was good. God saw 
that it was good. Genesis 3. The woman saw the fruit and she judged her. That was good fruit. Delight to the eyes. It would make you wise. Then she took it, which she wasn't supposed to do. The sons of God saw the non-Christian girls were cute and married them. See, if you don't see right, your judgment isn't right. And the fact that his eyes were dim, of course, is important for the subsequent narrative, but it also carries this overtone that he's lost good judgment. Where else in the Bible do we see a father with two sons whose loss of judgment and sinfulness is portrayed as his being made blind? What's his name? Eli. Right, Eli. Both of his sons were bad. That's the beginning of the kingdom period. Well, actually, it's the end of this period. Eli and his two sons. Eli is blind. At the end of the period of the kings, King Zedekiah sees his sons put to death and his eyes are put out. Those are parallel stories. Uh, only one of them is much more severe than the other one because the king has more responsibility than the priest does. Yes, Samuel's sons turn out bad, although it doesn't say his eyes were dim. But what does it say about Moses? His eye was never dim. He was as clear-sighted of judgment at the end of his life. You see, that doesn't necessarily mean that he didn't have to wear glasses. I imagine Moses probably holding stuff three feet away from him in order to read it by the time he's 120. But it means his judgment was sound. So this is semi-symbolic language. If somebody has bad eyesight, we're not to assume that he's stupid or that he's got bad moral judgment, but it's toned in here. It's put in here. Now, this is a terrible thing for Isaac, as we'll see in just a minute. Isaac now thinks he's getting on toward the grave. He doesn't know that he has got 43 more years to live in blindness. This is not a happy future for Isaac. But he thinks that it's about the end for him. So he decides he's going to bless Esau for 77 years, folks. We look at the chronology. For 77 years, Isaac has been favoring Esau even though God told him to favor Jacob. And now he's determined to go ahead and go through with it. So he does. And he privately calls Esau and sets this up, not knowing that Rebekah happens to be nearby and hears it. She's not in on this story. She just happens to hear it. And I don't think that we should say she's hanging around all the time spying on him because she'd have no way of knowing something like this was about to come to pass. In the providence of God, she hears it. So she takes steps to prevent it, to prevent Isaac from committing this sin and to prevent her son from being disinherited. Now, this is a problem I think we'll have to address when I have time to organize material better and study it out a little bit more, but why is this so permanent? <laughs> it reads almost later on here, Isaac trembled and says, well, who came in here and got this blessing? I can't take it back. He's blessed. You know, was it Joe Bob from over here in Mesopotamia who happened to sneak in and get the blessing? I don't think we can read it that way. I don't think it's possible that this means Isaac didn't know who it was. The whole reason Isaac is so nervous throughout this whole story is that he knows who God is and he suspects he's not going to be able to get by with this. So he keeps saying, are you really Esau? Are you really Esau? He's not worried that it might be the neighbor kid. He's worried that it might be Joseph. As soon as he finds out it wasn't Esau, he knows it was Jacob. And he says, the blessing must remain. Why would he say that? Why not say, hey, this was obviously I was deceived. 
Is it because he believes in magic? I don't think so. Some people would say, well, these people, they believed in magic. Once you conferred the blessing, you couldn't take it back. If you made the mistake of putting it on a dog, it was on the dog and you couldn't get it back. No, no, no. They had the same common sense we do. Isaac could have said, oh, well, he deceived us. The blessing's not on him. Jacob, get back in here. That blessing's not on you. You lied. You're cursed. You're out of here. Now, Esau, come on over here. I'm going to put the blessing on you. He could perfectly well have done that. The same as you and me could. Our common sense tells us that. There's nothing in the Bible about blessings that indicate that you can't unstick them once they're stuck on the wrong person. God does that all the time. God blesses people and if they sin, he takes the blessing away. He does it to Israel. If God can do that to Israel, then the images of God can do that. If Isaac's assessment was, Jacob has grossly sinned in coming in here, therefore I'm taking it back from him, just as God takes the blessing away from Israel later on. And just as God takes a blessing from Israel and gives it to the Gentiles, I'm going to take the blessing away from Jacob and give it to Isaac because Jacob sinned. He could certainly have done that. The reason he doesn't is because he knows that the right thing happened. Uh-huh. Jim, is this in the same category or kind of the same category as Daniel, Saul? Well, yeah, I think that Samuel's deception of Saul, God himself tells him to do that. This one's a little bit trickier because we don't have a word from God saying to do it unless you want to do as I'm doing, and that's count on way back in the beginning, God telling Rebecca. Or apparently God putting his blessing upon Rahab the harlot and deceiving her own people with people that is preaching. Yes, in fact, Jael, when she deceives Sisera and lures him into the tent and then kills him, it says she's most blessed among women. That language is picked up and applied to Mary. That's in Judges 5. Hebrew midwives, it says, after they deceived Pharaoh, God blessed them and established their homes. So, I think Rebecca is blessed. Now, the question, you know, the, so we'll talk about this later because time's about to evade us. And, you know, I'm sure that in your mind now it's a question, okay, how come Rebecca doesn't have a burial plot in the book of Genesis? Because all the other women do. And, well, that's a good question. If I took the other reading... I would be inclined to say, well, she's not given a burial because of this great sin on her part. But I don't think she was sinning. I think she was preventing a sin from happening. So I don't think that's why she isn't given a burial plot. But that's going to take more time to discuss than we want to today. It's just one of the several questions about this passage we'll have to hold off for a month to answer. A couple of things I want to mention here as we close in terms of what does happen so at least we have more of the story in mind. Brother, father, son, mother, Isaac, I'm convinced, all along is very nervous about what he's doing. That's why he keeps saying, three times, there are three tests here. Are you my son? Which one are you? That's in verse 18. Second time, come close that I may feel you, verse 21. Verse 24, he's just about to bless him. He says, oh man, are you really Esau? Third test. Now, he's so nervous about it, and when he finds out, He's completely shattered because he's suddenly in the presence of God. And I think that's what Hebrews 11 means when it says he repented. I don't know where else he repented. But it's when he says the blessing has to stay on Jacob. Okay, I've tried to get around God's command for 77 years, but I'm not going to get around it. So there you are. Now, the real horror of this story is what happens next. And if you want to know who the big sinner here is, 
Esau comes in and he's really upset. Because Esau, he knows about the promise and the prophecy, but he doesn't really care about God very much. He doesn't take God real seriously. And so it doesn't really mean much to Esau that God had commanded that Jacob be preferred before him. And for 77 years, Esau has been the crown prince. He gets to go out and hunt. He really does expect to inherit everything. And he says, Father says he's going to give it to him. So while Isaac knows that what he's doing is wrong, Esau doesn't have enough of a conscience. His whole life he's been brought up to think he's going to inherit. So this really is a complete destruction of him. And he is incredibly upset. And we can feel sorry for him. I mean, he's been misled his whole life. His parents should have said, you know, you came out first, but God told us your brother is to be preferred. They should have taught those children that for 77 years. Esau would have known he's going to get some of the property, but he's not going to get the official blessing and birthright. But Esau hasn't been led to believe that. Esau's been set up for this horrible thing that happens to him. His father sets him up. Now, he says, isn't there any blessing left? This is what's so sad, because there should have been. Under the law, if you have two sons, you give a double portion to the firstborn, but the secondborn gets a single portion. Now, that's later on under the law, but surely there would have been something like this. But Isaac says, there's nothing left. See, Isaac intended to give Jacob nothing. Isaac intended to give it all to Esau, not just a double portion, not just a lot of it, not just the official inheritance with some gifts for his son, however you want to cut it up. I mean, we don't know for sure what the standards were back then. Isaac had intended to give everything to Esau. And since he gave it to Jacob, that means there's nothing left for Esau. That's a real horrible thing here. Esau winds up with a lot of stuff, but that's nice. But Isaac intended to give him nothing. And all he can say to him is, you're not going to have the fat of the earth. You're not going to have to do with the heavens. All you have is your sword, and you will serve your brother, which might have been a blessing to him. But, he says, you won't. You won't keep with Jacob, who's the covenant guy. You'll break it off from him. And, of course, the sad thing for Esau is that's going to be his damnation. Now, a couple of other things that happened here. I wanted to point that out because, to me, that's the greatest horror in the story. Is that Isaac had intended to give absolutely nothing to Jacob. And the result is, God tricks him. Everything goes to Jacob and nothing is left for Esau. Well, Esau determines to murder Jacob. He's like Cain. All the sins that are there in the Bible before come up in Esau. He wants to drink blood, and you name it, he does it. And he says in verse 41, I want to look at this in Hebrew to see if this translation, it reads, Let the days of the morning of my father draw near, and then I'm going to kill Jacob, my brother. It's almost as if he's saying, I hope my dad dies soon so I can kill Jacob. It might not have that force in the original. It might just mean they are drawing near. My father's going to die soon, and then I'm going to kill Jacob. Well... God prevents that from happening by letting Isaac live for 43 more years. You know, when Jacob comes back into the land 20 years later, Jacob is going to leave now to get a wife. He's going to wind up with four of them. He's going to come back 20 years later. Isaac is still alive. And Esau knows he really can't do anything to Jacob until Isaac is dead. So when Jacob comes back into the land, Esau really still can't touch him. He might have, though. He comes out with 400 men. It looks like he's going to do it anyway, even though his father hasn't died yet. But this is a restraint. The sad part of the restraint comes up here when Rebecca says, 
go live with my brother Heron and stay with him a few days. A few days may be longer than a week, but it's not 20 years. When his anger turns away and he forgets what you did to him, I'll send for you. Well, she never sends for him, and that's because Esau's fury never turned away. He carried a grudge day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And every time Rebecca thought, you know, I can send for Jacob now, it was obvious that Esau was still going to kill him if he came back. And Esau does come out with 400 men to kill him. I think Rebecca's dead. If you want to know the truth, you'll have to wait till you get to heaven. But if you want to know my guess, my guess is that when God appears to Jacob in Paddan Aram and says, it's time to go home, that's the equivalent of Rebecca sending for him, and that tells me that that's when Rebecca died. I think Rebecca probably died while Jacob was in Paddan Aram. That's why her burial plot is one of the reasons it's not recorded. And that God himself comes and passes on her message, you come on home now. That's my guess, and we'll have to talk about that whole problem later on. But that's some of the things that are going on in this story. One other thing just to stick in your head. Well, listen to this. In verse 9, Rebecca says, Go to the flock and bring me two fine goat kids from there. Where else in the Bible do you have two goats? The Day of Atonement. What happens to those two goats? Yeah. One of them is sent away. One of them goes to God. Earlier on we have Isaac being taken up to Mount Moriah and a lamb is substituted for him or a ram and that's Passover. Now we've got Later on, coming afterwards, two goats. As a matter of fact, one of them is sent away, although he meets God on the way, so that seems like he's the goat that's going up to God. One of them stays behind, and it seems like he's the goat that's sent away in terms of the ritual. But it looks as if you have kind of a shadowy anticipation of that same theme. Two goats, two sons, one sent away, one sent to God. Interesting thing to think about in terms of if you were... Living back in the old days and you were meditating on the law day and night, was that a connection you would have made and thought, hmm, maybe there's something to reflect on here? Don't know. Today, take away, and maybe sometime you want to read this passage out loud again and see how my son, her son, his son, my father, your father, mother, brother, how those words keep showing up to give us a milieu in which the story takes place. And these other particular themes and arguments we'll come back to and look at again a month from now. Uh huh. Yeah, would she have needed two goats to make stew for one man? Not unless there were only certain very delicate parts of the goat that you were going to use, maybe. But then again, why call attention to two? And it would seem that, like you say, there's a symbolic overtone there. We're being told that for a reason that maybe comes up later on. A lot of times the Bible's that way. We're told something odd in a text that doesn't seem to have any relevance, but then in a later book of the Bible there's something that connects to it, shows that it was there for a reason. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. 
If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm